our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I worried a little bit this morning wearing this tie, you know, with poinsettias. I was afraid that I was going to blend in with the background. You wouldn't even know I was here, but obviously I don't blend in that well. I don't know if you ever read Help Wanted ads. Probably you have at different times in your life. I want to read a Help Wanted ad to you and see whether you might be interested. Spokesman needed for international firm. No experience necessary. No education required. Must be between 20 to 85 years old. Full or part-time with lots of exciting travel. Must be willing to move often, sometimes in the middle of the night. Must be comfortable speaking to large crowds. Will meet often with the CEO who will brief you on what to say to the public. Important that you be able to move in all circles of society from the highest to the lowest. Good vocabulary, a must. Ability to speak in colorful images, a big plus. Job entails unusual diet, including locusts and wild honey. Must look good in sackcloth and ashes. Unlimited opportunity for advancement. Low pay, but the benefits are out of this world. Must be willing to endure ridicule, slander, and occasional beatings. This job carries only one significant negative aspect. Make one mistake, and you will be stoned to death. Any takers? Now, that ad describes the biblical role of a prophet. And if you wonder about that last sentence, I assure you that it's true. The test for a biblical prophet was 100% accuracy. Make one mistake and you would be stoned to death. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, we hear a lot about stoning in the Bible, but you know the Jews had a very well-defined procedure for stoning someone. Here's the way it worked. The victim was stripped naked, hands tied behind him or in front of him. He was paraded through the town and out of town naked and placed on a scaffold that was nine foot high. The first official witness to his wrongdoing got to push him off the scaffold. The second witness, and it took two witnesses to do this, got to drop a large stone on his head and chest. And then everybody else who came by could pelt him with rocks. And then the corpse was buried in a special place, and the stone that delivered the death blow was also buried with him, and there was no mourning or crying or tears allowed for that person. False prophets had to be stoned. The law commanded it, and that's why prophecy Well, prophecy was not a growth industry in ancient Israel. It was a risky way to make a living. Now, sadly, today, prophecy is not nearly so risky. Anybody remember the name of Harold Camping? Radio guy, Christian radio station. Harold Camping predicted the second coming of Jesus in late September 1994. When Jesus didn't come, he said, whoops, 
miscalculation. He went on to say, well, even if I was wrong, God was just testing you to see whether you would stay faithful to him or not. Now, unfortunately, many Christians believed camping and were sorely disappointed when he turned out to be dead wrong. Now, if that's not bad enough, here's what I find bad about bad prophets, is that there are also multitudes of believers who hear predictions like that, and now they have another reason to dismiss the Christian faith. Now, all in all, Harold Camping debacle is a sad commentary on the willingness of way too many so-called evangelical Christians to believe every stupid prophecy, every stupid prediction that comes down the path. Do I talk about the Mayan calendar here? I mean, how many so-called evangelical Christians bought into that stupidity? So I a billboard the other day and said, Oops, and underneath it said, no man knows the time or the date. Signed, Jesus. Even Jesus doesn't know, and we've got clowns out there say, but I know. The camping was not a prophet in the biblical sense. I don't trust the Mayans any further than you can throw them. In spite of the fact that on my Facebook page the other day I said, stupid Mayans, now I have to write sermons. But he did make a prediction. He hedged it. He qualified it. But when you strip away all of his caution, <coughs> cautionary statements, he clearly predicted the second coming of Jesus during the last days of September 1994. I remember one back my first years as a pastor. A guy said 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. And when it didn't happen, it was like, uh, whoops. He was a NASA scientist, by the way. So he put out his second book, 89 Reasons Why It Happened in 1989. I really wanted it to happen in 88 because the date was September 16th. I was going out on my birthday. Didn't happen. You know, camping and people like this are just lucky that they are not living in Old Testament days. Now, in the text I'm going to share with you in a bit that comes from, uh, from Deuteronomy 18, Moses is talking to the people of Israel he warns against false prophets, and he promises that someday God will raise up a prophet like him in the midst of his people, and he also explains the tests that you should apply to distinguish between true and false prophets. The first thing he does is he issues a word of warning. Let me read you from the text. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of the, these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, you must be blameless, however, before the Lord your God. The nations you dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Now, I don't know about you, but God's word here is pretty precise, pretty pointed, pretty penetrating. Some of you might not like the list I am going to give you right now. 
But what he just said in Deuteronomy completely rules out everything from astrology to using a psychic to black magic, superstition, consulting a Ouija board, using tarot cards, visiting palm readers, ESP, voodoo, channeling, reincarnation, psychic transference, transference, white magic, Satanism, talking to spirits, dabbling in witchcraft, charms, totem poles, talismans, good luck charms, rabbit's foots, four-leaf clovers, praying to the dead, communicating with the spirit world, crystal balls, on and on. I'm just going to be very point, pointed, friends. All of that stuff is completely and utterly forbidden to Christians. They are marks of paganism. That's not me saying that. I can speak that very prophetically because all I'm doing is giving you the Word of God. So how can you tell when a person is truly talking for God? Listen to verses 20 to 22. It gives us two tests. Here's, first of all, is the so-called test of truth. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. And second is the test of accuracy. He goes on, says, If what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So there you have two tests for prophecy, truth and accuracy. A true prophet will measure up on both counts 100% of the time. Now, maybe we should talk about what a prophet is. Well, a prophet literally means one who speaks on behalf of another. Now, applied to biblical prophets, it's one authorized to speak on behalf of God. So when Isaiah is speaking, for example, he could claim divine authority because he was speaking only the words that God had given him. He was literally acting as God's spokesman. That's why his words had to be, what, 100% true. There was no margin for error. Now, understand that a biblical uh, prophet has two primary functions. You see them up there. The, the first of these is he delivers God's message to his own generation. And second of all, he predicts the course of future events. Now, if you think about that first one, the prophet was the guy who went around and he upheld God's righteousness. He's the one who condemned injustice of every variety. I mean, they were the guys who walked around and spoke against immorality. They talked about the standards of God's holiness. Uh, they dealt with the problems of drunkenness and condemned overuse of wine. Uh, they were hard on the oppression of the poor and the fatherless and the widow. They were against unjust extortion and interest rates. They were against taxation where it was not due. They condemned businessmen for using false weights for improper balances. Uh, and because of that bold denunciation of sin like that, guess what? Prophets were not very popular. Many were hated. Many were persecuted. And some were put to death. Anybody want to sign up for that job yet? The second thing, he predicted the course of future events. They predicted things like the rise and fall of nations. They predicted the outcome of battles in the Bible. They talked about coming judgment by God on pagan nations. Sometimes those predictions were fulfilled immediately. 
But sometimes their predictions took centuries to fulfill. But in every case, those prophets were 100% accurate. Now, sadly, because some of the prophets did not live to see their predictions come, guess what? They were mocked by people and put to death. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, God promises through Moses to raise up a godly line of prophets in Israel. And the line is going to be culminated with what he calls the prophet like me. And I don't know if I put these verses up here or not. Deuteronomy 18. Is that the next slide by any chance? Okay. Uh, It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Now, some of you at this point might be wondering... What connection could this possibly have with Christmas? What connection could this possibly have with this larger sermon series, which I've called Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, actually, uh, there is a connection between that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, especially when it comes to talking about a prophet who is born at Christmas time. There are four characteristics I can think of. He was raised up by God. I mean, he had a divine calling. He'd be like Moses. He had an intimate knowledge of God. He'd he'd be from among the people. He would be an honest-to-goodness Jew, and he would speak with divine authority because he had a divine calling and because he had an intimate knowledge of God. It's interesting to know that Jews always expected this prophecy to be fulfilled someday. They truly expected that, quote, the prophet would come. Now, the problem was, and Greg Savitt alluded to this a little bit last week, there are some people who thought the prophet would come just before the Messiah and would be an honest-to-goodness human person. And there were some people who thought the prophet would actually be the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this explains a few details around the Christmas story. You all remember the story about John the Baptist? John the Baptist is down Bethany beyond the Jordan. What's he doing? He's baptizing people. And here come the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious heat, come and see what he's up to. And they ask him who he was. And they said, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the Messiah? And he said, no. Are you Elijah? He said, Nope. Then they said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Now, when they asked him if he was the prophet, both the Jews and John the Baptist knew exactly what they were asking. They wanted to know if this was a human being who's coming. You know, the same thing happened to Jesus. John 6, he's feeding 5,000 people. Great church potluck one afternoon, huh? The crowd responds after he feeds 5,000 people, and they say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into this world. What are they referring to? They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Later, when Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles, some people actually listened to him and said, Surely this man is the prophet. 
John chapter 5 records a dialogue between Jesus and his antagonist where they're questioning his credentials about being the Messiah. And at the end of the debate, he summarizes his position to them by quoting or referring them to Moses, who everybody in Judaism loves, and he basically accused them of not believing what Moses said. He said, you guys didn't even believe what Moses said, and you love him. And they probably said, well, what did Moses say? And Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, when did Moses ever write about Jesus? Oh, man, there are a lot of answers, but there's none clearer than right here in Deuteronomy 18. And if you want to say, well, Deuteronomy 18 is an Old Testament verse, can't we get into the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Because all you need to do is take one final verse in Acts chapter 3. In this passage, some of you remember this, after Pentecost... Peter and a couple of other disciples are heading up to the temple to pray and some teach. And there on the steps of of Solomon's colonnade is a man crippled from birth who was begging. Remember that? And uh, Peter, you know, they're begging. And Peter says, uh, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ be healed. And jerked him up. And he was completely healed. And he ran through the temple, you know, shouting, you know, praising God. Now, He had done all of this, and when a crowd suddenly begins to gather in amazement because a man that they had never seen anything but crippled is now running and walking and leaping in his own power, they come up, and Peter stands there, and he preaches a very powerful evangelistic sermon. He tells them that he had done this miracle, this healing, in the name of Jesus, and he adds, by the way, the same Jesus that you guys crucified not too long ago. And as part of his proof that Jesus was the Messiah, Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3 quotes Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And when they did that, Jesus could have gone, ta-da, here he is. Today this has been fulfilled in your sight. That's That's what's happening. The evidence is so clear and overwhelming that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that were made 1,500 years before he was born. We've only looked at three of them so far. We'll look at another one on Christmas Eve, born of a virgin. I kind of wondered this last week. wonder what the bigger miracle is. Conceived in a virgin or born of a virgin? Or are they both great miracles? Probably are. Well, there's probably only one question that remains. It's the good old Lutheran question. What does this mean? Yeah. Okay. What does this mean for us? I mean, okay, that's really interesting story up to this point, Pastor. What does this mean that Jesus is this great prophet sent by God? Again, I'm glad you asked, because I have at least three answers. Here's first of all, the first thing to remember is that Jesus declares the true word of God. Uh, When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, his hearers commented that he spoke 
as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, all the people in Jesus' day had no authority, and so basically all they did was read what somebody else had written before them. Now, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, I stand up here and I preach a sermon. I offer biblical references. I have quotes to back up what I'm saying. I do that because I have no real authority on my own, in my own power, to teach the things of God. But guess what? Jesus needed no footnotes. Consider five statements about his words. He claimed divine authority for his words. I don't claim divine authority in my words. In fact, some of you have heard me say different times, this is just my opinion. This did not fall off of Mount Sinai. Or sometimes you've heard me say, I can say this because God, who has the authority, has said this. He said his words would bring eternal life. He declared that his words would not pass away. Now, I've got about 300 sermons out on iTunes right now. Fifty years from now, guess what? You're going to care less. What I preach to you in my five-plus years here, oh, you'll remember it for a while, a day or two, a month, a year. You remember when Pastor Kolb said this or that? But, you know, give it 20 or 30 years. No one will know. You'll be talking about the next pastor and whatever else. He ordered that his words be carried around the world. I don't care whether I have a Facebook account, email account, a Twitter account, or anything like that. My words are not worth sharing all the way around the world. God's words are. He said that the ultimate destiny of men and women depended upon their response to his words. No way would I stand up and say, folks, your entry into heaven depends on whether you believe what I say. If I ever said that, you know what you ought to do? Get that nine-foot scaffold. Well, I'm not going to go into the rest. You know, strip me down and march me out of the city. But you know, you know what I'm saying. I have no authority to say what Jesus said. Only a prophet of God can make those claims for himself. Therefore, when Jesus speaks, just like E.F. Hutton, remember that commercial? When Jesus speaks... You better listen. Why? Because he's speaking the true word of God. Here's the second thing. He diagnosed the true human condition. In John 3, Jesus explains why people turn away from the truth even when it stares them in the face. You see that verse up there? Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds we're evil. There is something within the heart of every last person who is sitting here this morning that makes you instinctively, instinctively hate the light and love darkness. We turn away from the truth because the truth does what? It shines on us and it exposes the darkness. That's why some people never want to hear a word of the law in a sermon. Oh, pastor, you're making us feel uncomfortable. 
Sorry. Sorry about it. It exposes our weakness. It makes me feel bad about myself. And nobody should make you feel bad about yourself. Well, then you're not going to be very happy with Jesus. Jesus exposes the darkness in our life. Why? He shows us our sin. That's the law. So that he can show us the Savior, which is the cure for that. You know what? Jesus saved his most scathing words for ultra-religious people. In his days, they were known as the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, in one chapter, listen to what Jesus said about the Pharisees, what he called them. Hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, snakes, and a brood of vipers. He exposed the darkness in their lives. And because Jesus is the true prophet of God, he knows the truth. He declares the truth, even when he knows that the truth may offend some of the hearers because he knows that unless the truth is exposed, healing cannot come. Here's the third thing. He predicts the course of future events. Most of us probably know that Jesus predicted the second coming of Christ, that he would come again someday. He he does that in Matthew 24 and 25. He does it in Mark 13. He does it in Luke 17. He does it in John 14. But since those, those events are yet future to us, we can't check those predictions yet for his accuracy. We're just kind of trusting by faith it will happen someday. But Jesus made five other specific predictions I'm going to share with you that that did come true. He predicted that one of his inner circle would betray him, fulfilled by Judas. He predicted his crucifixion, fulfilled on Good Friday in Jerusalem. He predicted his resurrection, fulfilled on Easter Sunday in Jerusalem. He predicted that the Holy Spirit would come, fulfilled at Pentecost, what, in the book of Acts. He even predicted the fall of Jerusalem, that the temple would be torn down. It was fulfilled about 35 years after Jesus died, when the Romans completely destroyed it in 70 A.D. I'll go back to Deuteronomy 18 just one more last time. When Moses promised a prophet like me, he added a very important phrase. It's in verse 15. He said, you must listen to him. And then he added a little bit of a warning. He said, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him into account. So all I'm saying, friends, is this, that if Jesus is this true prophet, when the prophet speaks, you have two choices. That's it. Just two choices. You either listen to what he says, or you completely disregard his words. Oh, but come on. Can't there be another one like... No. You listen to what he says, or you disregard it. There are no other options. If Jesus is the prophet of God then each and every person must either listen to him or completely ignore him. This is called what? Making a choice. Fishing or cutting bait. Whatever, however you want to put it. 
There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There is no such religion as Jesus and. Anybody who's got a religion that says, well, it's Jesus plus something, I'm sorry, is not a Christian. Jesus doesn't need and. You are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. You either follow Jesus or you ignore Jesus. So, what's your verdict? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the prophet greater than Moses? Can you really stake your entire life and your eternal future on his words? Well, to quote Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've made our choice. As Luther, yeah, we want to get back to Luther, huh? Here I stand. <laughs> I can do no other. Isn't that what Luther said? I'd urge all of you. It's good for all of us from time to time to consider the claims of Jesus on our life. Is Jesus really the Son of God? If he is, then you can do nothing less then crown him king of kings of your life and join millions of other people who are looking forward to celebrating on Christmas and every other day and willingly worship him as Savior and Lord. May God grant this in Jesus' name.